Hello from Heatwave UK. We might get a bit sweaty today in the studio. We have got one of our most popular guests, podcast number eight, San Quentin Prison Shootouts and Escapes. If you've not seen it with John Abbott, it is absolutely mind-blowing, and the link is in the description box below the video. The media described him as a James Bond supervillain with an IQ of 180 trained in Japanese martial arts. The people watching the video commented on how calm and cool he talks, a bit like speaking to a real-life Christopher Walken. And I think it's the contrasts between the stories he told in part one and his manner that has really fascinated people. And a few quotes came in before we get to his hard-hitting stories. A few quotes came in that I'd just like to run by you, John, and see what your um, reaction is. The people really focused on you saying... I'm not a tough guy, and I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but I must say, robbing drug dealers was entertaining. Robbing drug dealers really warmed my heart. Well, I, I, you wanted me to be honest, and unlike most stories you hear about crime where people feel driven to do it because of their addiction or whatever it was, I just enjoyed it. So, yeah, I mean, when I think back on it, if I, if I hadn't gone to jail, it would have been all roses, but uh, because uh, the actual crime part of it was a lot of fun and exciting. So, But there was a lot of the downside to that as well. If you have watched part one, in the first shootout, John loses his brother, and then in the second shootout with the Canadian cops, there's more serious injuries and fatalities in that one as well. The next quote then. Intelligence is weakness. Intelligence allows you to see things from the other side. There is no other side. There is just survival side. And that was, we're talking about you staying in San Quentin prison on that one. Well, the problem is that you don't have much time to think when it kicks off. And if you're spending time thinking about what's going on, you could just go down in those few seconds. So the less time you think, and the faster you react, the better shape you're going to be in. Because your natural instincts are the right ones. And they'll tell you what to do. Profound words. And you just mentioned about you being clean cut and getting mistaken for being a cop. Did you have a story around that? Well, before I actually got arrested in California, um, I used to... Um, practice shooting. I used to go out and shoot handguns. But I didn't have much money. So I didn't want to go to an official range because you had to pay and you had to be a member. So I found a place out in the country where somebody had bulldozed a berm of sand, put up a couple of posts and strung some wire, and you could you know, put clothespin on uh, targets. So I used to shoot, go out there, and there was nobody around. And I was shooting one day, and this car pulled up, and a uh, young guy got out, maybe a year or two older than me. And uh, he just came over, and he said, uh, oh, you're shooting. I said, yeah. He says, well, it's a nice, nice gun you got there, nice long barrel. 
357 with long barrels about that long. And he said, is it accurate? And I said, well, as accurate as I am. He says, well, I've got a problem there. And I said, what do you mean? Oh, he said, there was this son of a bitch. Uh, a couple of days ago out at Yuba City, uh, we, were, we were after him. And uh, he made a run for the cornfield from a farmhouse. And he said, we just lit him up. He said, or we just, all of us, shotguns, pistols. He said, I went through a double loader on this guy. And he said, we clipped him. And he went down. And we just kept shooting. And I said, well, you know, why, why so, uh, so hard? He said, well, he, he dragged a hairdresser out of a hairdresser in Woodland and raped her and then cut her throat. And it hadn't been the first time. He'd been in Vacaville, and he'd done the same, same thing, served about five, six, seven years uh, as the pastor's assistant, you know, working in the church and in the prison, and got out. And uh, anyway, so I'm thinking, wow, this is, uh, this is pretty serious. And he says, so I need some more practice because uh, we hit him 13 times. I mean, they took 13 bullets and pellets out of this guy, but he didn't die. And he said, I, you know, we got to kill him dead when we got the chance. And, and he says, uh, do you, wanna, you want some bullets? And I said, well, yeah, okay. What? And he opened the trunk of his car. He entered a box. You could have, you could start World War III with it. There must have been like 5,000 rounds in this box. And he said, help yourself. And so, you know, I had to, I couldn't say no, because, you know, so I filled a few times and shot a few rounds off, but I was pretty yancy about being with this guy because he obviously he thought I was a cop. And uh, the guy who, who he'd shot, um, was, his name was Reese. And so a couple of months later, I was in the Yolo County Jail, and Reese was in the Yolo County Jail too. No way. And this guy, he, he was worried, I guess, about what was going to happen at court. So he came up with this idea that if he, if he come, come off as a nutter, they'd send him back to Vacaville. So he started screaming to everybody during the day, castrate me, castrate me. And uh, at night he would howl and scream. And uh, one day... The, the word went around the jail cell that um, he'd been taken off to the hospital. And what Reese had done is he'd got a HB pencil from one of the Christian volunteers, jammed it all the way up his dick, and then broke it off five, five or so times and ground it around. And... When the guard came by for count, he just lifted, he lifted the blanket and showed him the whole bed full of blood. But he still didn't die. And they, they repaired him from that one. And uh, when I went to Vacaville, you could see him on the uh, medical side where Mr. Kane was. And he got his old job back as the, uh, the helper for the priest. Who was the priest? It wasn't Tex Watson, was it? No, I don't, I think it was a civilian. Tex Watson was on the other side. Yeah. So that was a, an eye-opener for me. One, that a policeman would just tell somebody he didn't even know that he'd intentionally, they were trying as hard as they could to kill a guy. 
And the only reason they stopped shooting, he told me, was because the ambulance came howling in. And they couldn't just keep shooting the guy when he was down in front of the ambulance drivers. What do you think about that, watching this video? If this guy was a rapist and a throat slasher, what do you think about the kill on site action of the cops? Let us know in the comments. So the police have a, have a window of opportunity where they can have what they call court in the street. And that window is from when you, whatever the crime is, until whoever the other responders, the ambulance or the civilians show up. And in, in that little space, they can work out the justice they want, and they often do. Because they have fr um, throwaway guns and stuff, don't they? They can just plant. Yeah. Wow. So you were talking about the conditions I experienced versus what you experienced, the cockroaches, the heat, and you said something about the noise. Well, each person has a thing that bothers them the most. Um, for me, it was the noise. I mean, I was in California and it was hot, so you got used to that. But the problem was you're up all day and you're not doing anything physical. So you got energy and then nighttime comes and you're trying to go to sleep. But there's just this cacophony of noise because people are shouting, the TV's on full blast. And in prison, your physical body is, is in prison. But the space between your ears and your head, that's the one bit of freedom you can hold on to. Did you guys not have like a 10-10 rule? No. The TV just stayed on as, as, the, as the inmates wanted it to. And there was always somebody who slept during the day and stayed up all night with the TV blasting. Now, I wasn't used to it. I, when I went to bed at home, it was dark and it was quiet. And so at one point, it was about two in the morning and the TV was still blasting in the cell and I couldn't stand it anymore. So I, I just suddenly said, turn the fucking TV off. And I thought to myself, what have I done? I just thrown out a, like a challenge to anybody who likes TV. And do I, sit, do I stay in my bed or do I jump up and face whatever happens? So I jumped up to try and face what happened, but I wasn't ready at all for what happened. And basically I got into a fight, which I lost so bad, you can't even consider it. Can you take us through it? Well, the problem was the guy was a fat guy. He was a great, big, fat, black Michelin man. And so I never thought, I never thought just looking at him, I wasn't, I wasn't a fighter, but I never thought I could lose to a guy that fat. You just step aside him and just, you know, use him as a heavy bag or something. But it didn't work like that. He had one move and he did it exactly right. We were, I was in the narrow space between the bunks and the bars trying to get to the day room, which was an open space. And he just charged straight down like a hippo. And he just threw himself on me. And I went back on the bunk and 300 pounds of fat just enveloped me. <laughs> and I realized suddenly I couldn't move. The fat just covered every space in between me. And I'm just, I'm nailed. I, I can't do anything. Luckily, my hands were free. And so he decided to strangle me at that point because I couldn't move. So we went for the strangle and I grabbed his wrists. 
And, well, you saw pictures of me. I was no great physical specimen. But luckily for me, he was dope fiend weak. I mean, he, he was a just a straight-up dope fiend, so he spent all his time on the nod on a couch. And when it came to strangle me, he just hadn't the oomph. But I've got this great fat guy nailed me like this, trying to strangle me, big fat black guy. And his breath was so bad, his teeth were rotten. And it was absolutely disgusting, right? But we had to keep struggling until an impasse happened where he couldn't strangle me and I couldn't get him off. <laughs> could you breathe? I could just breathe, but I couldn't. I, if I breathed too much, I might pass out because this guy was just all over me. And I was totally helpless. Anyway, so finally I said to him, hey, could you get off me, please? And he just rolled off and let go and... He went and sat down in the TV room, and I went to bed. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, I've never lost a fight so badly. I, I wasn't even in it. But it was a really good fight for me because I learned something very important. I learned the rule, the first rule of the ghetto. And because so many people from the ghetto go to jail, it's the first rule of jail. And that is, get down first. Whatever you're doing, get down first. So, you know, in Canada, where I spent a lot of time as a kid, there was a kind of a ritual to getting into a fight. You know, we go to a party, there's a lot of alcohol around. You look at me and say, what, what the fuck are you looking at? And I say, what the fuck is it to you? And then you say, well, fuck you then. And then I say, well, fuck you too. And gradually you work yourself up to where you know there's going to be a fight. And there's, there's kind of a, a ritual to it. But in the jail, all that's gone. It just goes straight to maximum violence. So when I think back on it, that fight was the best thing that could have happened to me. Because one, I learned the first rule of, of prison in jail. And two, I didn't get hurt. <laughs> so as far as fights are concerned, that one's at the top of the pile for being a useful fight. Do you remember your next fight that you had after that one? Well, the thing is, if you get into a fight in prison, you failed. It means you haven't been playing your cards right. There's an edge where you want to be. You want to be in the edge of where you're threatening to fight or threatening violence, where the other person knows that you're good to go, but that you don't go, that you haven't gone. Because in fights, you never know what's going to happen. You slip, fall down, and bang your head on the wall, and you're done. Now, you could be the best fighter in the world. It doesn't matter. That You give the guy that advantage, you're done. So all these Hollywood movies, I mean, it's just embarrassing to watch because, you know, a guy gets a tremendous smack on the jaw, jumps up, and he's good, good to fight. The fact is, you hit a guy hard like that in the jaw, one, he's got a broken jaw, two, he's on the ground, stunned, and then you just go to work on him. That's what really happens. So prison fights, if you ever get into them, are usually sucker punches, and the sucker punch nearly always wins. So whoever sucker punches the other guy, a good one, he wins. There's no five-minute fight scene where you do your Bruce Lee imitation. You know? 
how did you make the prisoners know that you were good to go? Well, the thing is, I realized right after that thing with the fat guy that I was totally unequipped physically. Like, I'd never taken physical training seriously. I'd never really been into that. And so I started a routine of working out. And basically, I discovered a secret. Working out works on two levels. One, you get physically strong and fit and healthy. And you can, and if you have to go, you can go. But two, you get tired. And so when the night comes and they lock the doors, you can go to sleep. And that was the real one. Because what tears prisoners to pieces, and the reason guys top themselves in jail, is they can't get to sleep. They're in bed just churning it over, you know, why did I do this? Why did she do that? Why did he say that? He was my bro. How could he drop a dime on me? And they just tear themselves up. So you got to be able to get to sleep in prison. And you got to be fit. And so I, that's where I focused. And those two came together. And so basically, another guy might think he's a better fighter than me. But if he's watched me running around the track and lifting the weights and doing 100 and 200 sit-ups, and it puts an element of doubt in his mind. Now, most prisoners, almost all of them, are not into real fitness. I don't know what you saw when you were in Arizona, but the guys that I saw, they wanted to look big. They wanted big biceps, 20-inch biceps, and they wanted huge pecs. They wanted to be like the gorilla that does a threat display. And the other ones, the little gorillas, are afraid, and they just kind of cringe and cower. And so for them, fitness was just looking big. It was like lifting the weights, buffing out. But that isn't, that isn't physical fitness. There's, there's three kinds of fitness, and that's only one kind. That's strength. Then you've got aerobic fitness, running. But there's another kind of fitness, which nobody in prison ever bothers with, except a few Mexican Chicanos on the speed bag, and that's quickness. And Weightlifting actually trains you to do just one thing, which is move heavy weights slowly. I mean, so you might be really good at throwing bales of hay when you get out. But <laughs> there was a guy I, I knew on the weight pit, and he came in on a parole violation, and he, he was a great big weightlifter, 20-inch biceps. And he told me the story. He said, you know, getting out really messed him up. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I went to a bar and a guy disrespected me. He said, I threw a punch. And I threw a punch and just the speed of throwing that punch and the weight of his bicep tore the bicep off his bone. It tore the muscle off the bone. So he had to go in for surgery for just throwing a punch in a bar because all that muscle is heavy and makes you slow. So, again, I wanted to be sure my fitness included running and quickness. So I was up for things like badminton and, and handball. In badminton in Canada, in, in the States, the Chicanos played handball. I don't know if you... A lot of Chicanos where you went, where they have handball court and... All right, they only had handball in Supermax. 
And it was hard to get access to that. Yeah, not a place you'd want to be. <laughs> so, <coughs> to give you a sense of 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 the uh, difference between fitness, um, I was at Vacaville on the reception side one summer's day, and the word came over that the other side, the medical side of the prison, were having a sports day. And so the word came that they would do something in the way of sports for the reception side. And so this uh, member of the inmate committee from the black side came over, I mean from the, the medical side, a black guy, and they put up $20 canteen for a mile race. And now the, the yard at Vacaville was about three laps was a mile. And so this is a big deal. Twenty twenty dollars ducats, you know, canteen meant something. The thing was, not a single white guy wanted to participate. So when the time came to have the race, there were the yard was full of people, and the blacks had just covered this this grandstand with guys, and obviously they were betting, and. There was, you know, the Chicanos and the whites. And so when you looked, the blacks were all around where the race was going to start and they were on the bandstands. And the whites, like the chimpanzees who were on the outs, they were all in the corner looking away, pretending they didn't care, right? Now, I'm talking all the tattooed heroes, right? <laughs> there they were. They're, they weren't seeing it. It was like it didn't exist, right? <laughs> and then they called for the runners, and about eight blacks went down. And then I saw these two chunky Chicanos. These guys had, you know, they were, Chicanos have kind of short legs, short stocky legs and big kind of bodies. And you could tell they weren't any runners. And there was one Indian went down and he didn't look like a runner either. And I realized that these guys were representing that if there was gonna be a race, they were going to represent La Raza. Even if they knew they were going to lose, they still went down to, to represent. And then I looked over at all the tattooed heroes and I was waiting to see who was going to volunteer from that team. Nobody, not a move. And I thought to myself, this is embarrassing, right? I mean, the blacks are going to have a race. I mean, you know, somebody who's white's got to go down there, win, lose, or draw. And so, I, I thought I'd go down, and I used to jog, but I, I hadn't run. I just used to jog around with this uh, El Salvadorian guy. And so I went down, and the race started, and everybody just took off, and I'm last, sort of chugging around. But of course, they, ran, they were running too fast because the black guys were betting money. There was serious money being laid on the different players because each black ghetto like there's Sacramento, and the Sacramento don't like Oakland, and Oakland doesn't like San Francisco. And so they, each ghetto has got their, their rep, the person that, who's running for them, and so there's their betting. And the Mexicans, of course, I mean, the Chicanos, they're just representing the race. Anyway, so I started picking it up a little bit, and I noticed that people were falling out, like the Indian and the Chicanos and a couple of the blacks. And I realized that these guys were done, like they were gassed. 
and I wasn't gassed. And I thought to myself, I might, I might be in this race. So the, the second lap started. And ahead of me, there were three blacks. And all the blacks, all the other blacks were on the bandstand there. And I thought to myself, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to have some fun here. <laughs> so I put on the heat right as I was coming up to the bandstand. I went past two of them. And then there was this one little lithe guy who was running well in front. And I'll never forget this because I started coming up on him fast. And a guy in the bandstand yells out, Sacramento Slim, run, nigga, run. That white boy catching you. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and Sacramento Slim, he, did, he made the mistake. He turned his head around to look, right? And of course, as soon as you do that, you're slow. And I went past him. But of course, to doing what I'd done, I actually started my run, my, my, the heat, too soon. And then, it, and then he, he, was, he was a runner, too. He wasn't just one of these guys who was playing at it. And we went around, we ran around the clubhouse turn, right? And all of a sudden, I had like 100, 200 tattooed white heroes there, all so happy to be and screaming and shouting and go, go, go. And they'd come alive, right? And we come around the corner. And I, by this time, I couldn't feel my body. I couldn't feel my feet. I was just gasping. But I know the kid behind me, he was gasping too. And I thought if I could just stumble across and I managed to, he, he come up to about five yards behind me and I managed to come across wow. and fell out. And so I guess that was the, the only time I really represented the, the white race. And it wasn't even, I wasn't even intending to really. I just, I wanted a good, good workout. Did they have a, like a celebration for that? Well, they never paid me the $20, $20 ducats. It was obviously meant for the fellas, the black fellas who were sure that's, it, and it was, that's who was going to win the race. And so about a year and a half later, I was in the Oakland County Jail up in the Ice House. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Oakland. Is that on the way to San Fran? Yeah, it's the other side of the bay. Yeah, I've been, I've done some runs up in that area from Arizona to San Fran, back down to LA, over to San Diego, Mexico, blah, 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 all around the... That. Well, Oakland's not a place a white boy usually would, would go because yeah. uh, it's a hardcore ghetto and it's 85% black. Mm. And basically, white prisoners have to be protected in the county jail there because, you know, they'll be in a, in a, in a cell with 25 ghetto blacks. Anyway, so because I was a CDC prisoner, uh, I was a state prisoner, I was put up in the top in death row with the, called the Ice House. And so they had this great big black, everybody's black in there, but this great big black sheriff deputy, and he shouts out, yo, Ice House, Ice House coming. And they take you up to the very top of the uh, county jail there in the Ice House. And it's filled with everybody who's facing death row except a few state prisoners who were in there. And I was in there, and I was sitting in my cell. Well, it was like a four-man cell, but I was sitting there on my, on my bunk. And this young black guy comes in, he goes, yo, he says, you the white boy won that race in Backville. He says, I remember now. He said, I should have known. I would have won all the brother's money. He said, only white boy that would run, I should have known. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> so, so it was, and even in, in, in like the county jail, you can get an aerobic workout. So you can, like for example, run on the spot with your knees up about your chest and just keep that going for about half an hour. And you can have, right up. you'll have a pool of sweat around and just the same as if you went for a real run. So it's possible. Did, what did you make bags out of to box punch? I didn't. I didn't do that. Uh, did it, it? Did it like toilet rolls in socks in the Arizona jail? Well, in in San Quentin, they had a they had a ring in the gym, and if you had a beef with somebody, and you guys mutually decided to work it out in the ring, they'd put you in the ring. But the trouble was for these guys was everybody's there watching. And these guys, most of them would just make fools of themselves because the guy get into the ring and they go hard and heavy at each other using all their anaerobic energy for the first round. And the second round, about halfway through, they were gassed and they'd just be holding each other like a couple old drunks. And they were done. And basically they were revealing how unfit they were in front of everybody, which is not a good plan inside the prison. It's like a weakness display. Yes. So you're better off actually um, not doing that. I had a couple of Chicanos try to get me to go into boxing because they used to see that I could run. But of course, for the same reason, I don't want to go into, this. one, I don't want my, my face punched off, but uh, two, uh, you know, you want to keep it hid. So... For people watching this, there was a few choice clips we took out of part one. I'll put them in the description box as well. They got quite a lot of views. One of them was, what happens when an Aryan brother asks you for your ice cream? <laughs> and the other one was, what happens to tough guys in prison? And the way John just tells those stories, like, like you've heard him so far today. It's just mind-blowing. Your, your method of delivery is uh, compulsively listenable to. So, well, here's a story about, do you remember a, a fellow named Philip Thompson? Philip Thompson, no. Yeah, he's the, he's the bad guy that everybody dumps on when, you know, in the stories that are around my name are basically because I was linked with him. Oh, the, the media articles about yeah, you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he, he was at Vacaville. And he was no fighter, but he was a dangerous guy. And one of these um, AB guys decided to put it on him. And so Phil was, he, he was into all kinds of things. He was into machine guns. He was into making speed. He was into all kinds of stuff. And he was, he had that kind of reputation but this guy in jail, there's a difference between a street reputation for being a tough guy and then being inside. And you can be number one mafia hitman, but you don't have any guns inside the prison. And that's not going to do you any good at all. So I heard a hitman say, I wish I had my <laughs> pistolas with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they say... In America, they say uh, God made man, and Sam Colt made him equal. <laughs> so, so how did this AB put it on this guy? Well, he put it on Phil. He just 
he called him a punk and said, you got to get in the ring or, or you shouldn't be on the line and this and that. And Phil, being 225, 230, 6'5", he, you know, he was a big guy. But he didn't lift weights and he was kind of soft around the middle and, uh, you know, and he was also 35, he wasn't 23 or whatever these guys usually are. And so he had to get up in the ring. But what he was is a dangerous guy and he, and he, he knew things. So when they came to the first bit of boxing, he just leaned into the guy and he put his thumb into his eye and pushed down on his optic nerve and, and the guy just went unconscious. Bam, just put his thumb right in the eye and pushed down on the optic nerve. Bam, the guy just fell out. And the guy didn't even know what happened to him. He, think, he thought he got hit. And so Phil just walked away and threw the gloves down and he'd won the fight. So was there any blowback for that? Because did the other guy feel... Well, the guy the guy didn't know what happened, you see. Like if you get choked out or you lose unconscious, you don't, you don't have no memory of what happened. So it was an example of what? People who know things uh, sort of stepping out of the box. And of course that helped Phil's reputation because the fight was over before it started. So you gave three criteria earlier, so that would be like a fourth criteria then, wouldn't it? People who know things. People who know things. <laughs> well, you see, Phil was, uh, actually, your, um, what's the name, Mr., what's the name of your, your friend there, the fellow from the States who reveals uh, fake uh, medals? Oh, let's keep his name out of it, please. Yeah. Because, um, well, I was just, I'm curious about, because, Phil, he used to talk about um, being, uh, have you ever heard of the Phoenix program in Vietnam? Yes, CIA. Well, it wasn't, the guys who were actually on the ground were in the military, mm. CIA organized, but do you, do you remember what they actually did? Yeah. I've read about it, but please tell the audience. So the, in Vietnam, the Americans and the South Vietnamese were losing the war because the Viet Cong would just infiltrate a village and then simply execute anybody who supported the government, school teacher, the village chief, uh, you know, the village tax officer, whoever it was. And this worked. They would just be found or not found, just disappear. And so they were, the Viet Cong were able to spread through all the villages because if you didn't follow the program, you disappeared or your throat was cut and you were thrown to the pigs. And so the Americans finally realized, hey, we should be doing this. And that's what the Phoenix program was. They tasked these guys, they give them a list of who the cadres were in each village and these guys would go in and cut their throats at night. And so Phil told me that's what he used to do in Vietnam. He worked for Uncle Sam doing that work. Now you got to ask yourself the question, when you've had guys, young guys doing work like that, night after night, month after month. And then the tour of duty ends. What kind of person, what kind of person, when they come back, what kind of person are they going to be? Well, look, right now you've got 20 plus committing suicide a day and you've got shootouts and 
shooting sprees and a lot of them incarcerated. More than half of my friends in prison were uh, ex-military. So the adjustment is too extreme. And so people ask, how come Phil had, uh, you know, was able to maneuver around like he did? I don't, I don't have any access to U.S. military records, but it could be that you know, having that kind of background opens doors that you and I would never see into. Mm. Do you think he enjoyed that line of work? I don't think it's a question of enjoying. I think you just get used to it. Mm. And people just get used to things. For example, in the Japanese army in World War II, they had a problem. They had all these nice mama's boys who'd been conscripted into the army. And how do you turn them into killers? How do you do that? And the Japanese thought, well, the best way is just get them into killing fast and hard. And so what they used to do is they bring Chinese prisoners of war and they give the guy a bayonet and then they say, just bayonet him. And the guy couldn't do it. And he'd say, no, you have to, or we're going to beat the shit out of you with rifle butts. So take, make your choice. And so you go over and poke the, poke the Chinese prisoner in the guts maybe and then poke him a bit more and finally he managed to kill him. And then he'd be vomiting you know, on the side and maybe he couldn't eat for a while. And then tomorrow they'd have him with another Chinese prisoner. And eventually you'd be surprised how flexible and adaptable humans are. After about four or five Chinese prisoners, he's just stabbing him right in the heart with wolfish smile on his face. That's how the Nazis converted butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, wasn't it? Well, I, I don't think it's it, it's a it's a comment on the Nazis or the Japanese. I just think it's in human. All, it's it's in all of us. If, yeah. If your group has decided to kill people, and you're in that group, then you have to do your duty. You have to, even though you might not like it. Have you ever read a book called Ordinary Men? No. This book, um, it's a real eye-opener. It's, um, it's about World War II, um, a unit of reserve policemen. They were kind of older guys in their 30s from Hamburg. And they'd been policemen, just beat cops. And they were drafted into the army, into what was called Reserve Battalion 101 or something like that. And their job was to go into Poland and Ukraine and Russia and kill Jews. Now, these guys weren't Nazis. They weren't even members of the party. They were just guys from working-class neighborhood. And this study, by the way, was done by the West German government to try and understand this. And these guys didn't want to kill people. And they didn't want to shoot children in the head or girls or mothers or grandmas. But that was the job. And so the officer in charge, he said, you know, I know this is difficult work and I know a lot of you might not want to do it. He said, so if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to. And then he also brought double rations of schnapps for everybody so they could drink to get them in the frame of mind for this work. Well, they spent three and a half years killing tens of thousands of people. And 
in the stories about these guys. Guys were vomiting. Guys were couldn't sleep at night. Guys were breaking down. But they still got the job done. Now, this is the horrible part. Now, in civilian life, you'd say, well, they're all psychopaths, right? Or sociopaths or something. They're evil. Well, the thing is, they're not evil. They're us. And if your group, whatever your group is, has the job to kill people, that's what you'll do. And it doesn't matter how the nice guy you think you are or don't think you are. If you're part of that group, you'll feel the need to be part of the group. And to be part of the group, you have to carry your weight. And if you're carrying, carrying the weight means shooting grandma in the head, that's what you end up doing. And the guys who were in this unit, after the war, they went back to their wives and their children and led normal lives, the ones who hadn't broken down or become total drunks. So what do we learn from that? This is stuff, I mean, people don't want to know about it because the whole thing with, for example, calling someone a psychopath, it, it puts distance between you who are normal, virtuous, good-hearted, warm, emotional person and this evil killer who could just, who has no empathy and kill people without, without a qualm. It, it's a, sort of a, a mental construct to allow you to put distance, say that you're a good person, but they're a bad person. I mean, in the old days, the priest would say, well, he has the devil in his heart. Or, you know, they would, they would frame it in a Christian sense, because we were in a Christian society. Now we have psychology, a kind of a pseudoscience, which frames it in terms of, you know, all these different categories of what people are. But these people who were in this police unit, they started out as normal people. They did their wartime service, and they went back to being normal people. And they weren't thrown in prison after that. They weren't brought to justice. Because of the realization in Germany, what, you're going to throw everybody in jail who, who shot a Jew? I mean, how many people is that going to be? So, All right, so the shootouts you were engaged in weren't during wartime service and some of the people in the comments have said that you are a psychopath how do you respond to that well have you looked at the psychopathic checklist yeah by dr hare i've read a few books but i've not looked at dr well, hare's i don't the, think the actual um, i've read john ronson's the psychopath test well, Dr. Harris, the guy who came up with what's called the psychopathic checklist. Okay. And he actually uh, he comes from the same area I came from. Really? The same time too. Here's a copy of it. And you can just kind of look at it. He carries the psychopath checklist around with him, folks. Well, I thought you'd be interested. <laughs> I thought you'd be interested. <laughs> okay. So, number one. Glibness, superficial charm. I think you've got a genuine charm. Well, when you look at glibness and superficial charm, doesn't it depend whether you like it or not? If you don't like what the guy's saying, some salesman trying to sell you air conditioners or something, then he's glib and superficial. Yeah. But if you like it and you agree with what he's saying, he's with, you know, what, 
climate extinction or you know Greenpeace, and you agree with that, then he's he's not superficial. You know, he's right on. He's 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 so it's very subjective. Well, yeah, those people are phony, aren't they? You definitely keep it real. Previous diagnosis as psychopath. Well, that's a nice circularity, isn't it? Right? <laughs> <laughs> if you've been diagnosed as psychopath, you probably, maybe, <laughs> this time around, are a psychopath. <laughs> I mean, that fills out the checklist nicely, that one. <laughs> Did they do any tests on you? No. Okay. Egocentricity, grandiose sense of self-worth. You speak in a very low-key self dep way with your humor so you don't come across as grandiose well there's an interesting it's like thing a, about there's like a deadly energy to you but you're mild-mannered as well well there's an interesting thing about sort of grandiosity when they ask when they survey drivers they ask driver do you think you're better than average driver or worse than average or average 80% of people say they're better than average, okay? The same thing when they, when they ask people about intelligence. When they ask people, how intelligent do you rate yourself? 80% of people rate themselves above average. So, again, I'm not really sure. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that most people, to have confidence in life, you have to see your life in kind of rose-tinted glasses to a certain extent. If you wander around thinking, shit, I'm going to die. Nothing means anything. The worms are going to eat me. Then you're going to just, what, crawl into the bottle or stay in bed? Cause a premature heart attack and never achieve anything. I think if you want to achieve things especially, you've got to be goal-focused and confident in your ability. You certainly have got to have self-confidence, so then you're never even going to start or attract anyone to your cause. Proneness to boredom, low frustration tolerance. Oh, I'd probably have to plead guilty on that one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pathological lying and deception. Well, the, what's, what's normal lying and what's pathological? Help me, guys. <laughs> normal <laughs> lying versus pathological. What's the difference? Pathological would mean what? That you always lie? Yeah, it sounds like that, doesn't it? Like you lie all the time. Does it mean you lie all the time and you believe your lies? Well, I don't know if that, it doesn't really say it, but if you're pathological, that means what? You're, you're, you're lying more than most normal people do? So, I mean, my children would tell me lies, right? I'd say, well, were you eating the cookies? And they'd say, no. And I'd see the cookie crumbs in her mouth, right? And, I'd say, you know. and then I told my parents lies. So there's white lies. And, and then there's the relationship lies. Well, where were you last night? Oh, well, I was at work. Oh, yeah, okay, well. And it, the social grease, lying is almost part of the social grease to make things smooth. So then you got to ask yourself, what's pathological lying? So I'm still stymied on that one. Conning slash lack of sincerity. It's going to be your, whether you think I'm conning you or I think you're conning me, it's going to be subjective judgment, isn't it? Yeah. Lack of remorse or guilt for your crimes. Well, I feel guilty about my brother being killed. I've 
that's the big stain on my life yeah. know, right, right from that time on. About robbing drug dealers, pff, I used to enjoy it. I don't feel guilty about that at all. I mean, I, it's like, do you ever watch The Wire? I've watched a few. When they talk about the game, if you're in the game, mm. then that's the game. Well, that's what people told me as well. Um, it's like two Tonys who was a hitman, he, he said, it's like, you know, you sign up for the military, kill or be killed. You sign up for gangland, drug wars and mafias, kill or be killed. So, lack of effect and emotional depth. Lack of effect and emotional depth. What, what, what would be an example of that? Lack of effect, guys? What does that mean? Affect. So, for example... Lack of emotional depth, say. Well, for example, some people get the news. I got the news my grandmother died while I was in jail in Yolo County. Now, I didn't show any emotion when they told me. But about three hours later when I was in the bed, a blanket over my head, I was in tears. Now, if you saw me when I got told that and I didn't have any reaction to it, what, do I get told that I'm, I have no lack of effect and lack of emotional depth? Well, you just can't show weakness in there, can you? So how do you judge this kind of thing? What, who's to say how different people react to different situations? You know, Italians burst into tears at almost nothing. I remember Joe Biazzi, this heroin dealer, he was going to, uh, upstairs in Canada, he was going to uh, court to get his sentence. And his lawyer told him he was looking at 20 years for heroin. And he was in front of the mirror in tears, just pouring down his face. Me bambini, me bambini. But I said to him, Joe, I said, you weren't crying when you were selling all that heroin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I guess it all depends when you catch a person, whether you see that. So he was, he's ticked on acting skills. Mitigating circumstances at court hearings. Okay, so callous lack of empathy. So what is empathy? Empathy is f understanding or feeling what the other person is feeling. Yeah. Well, you have to have empathy if you're going to deal with people. The, there, are, there are people who have no empathy, but they're not psychopaths. They're autistic. Have you ever been around autistic people? Yeah, autistic children, for example, have absolutely no, well, certain kinds of autistic children. Their mother is nothing in particular. Just, she's just a vehicle to get the orange juice they want out of the fridge. They're, the human t contact means nothing. They don't want to be touched. They care about patterns and numbers and music. They have no, no interest at all. I visited uh, an autistic couple with my daughter once. I mean, excuse me, the, a couple had two autistic children. And they were so happy because my daughter was about 10, but similar to the age of these autistic kids. And so my daughter went out to play with them. And she came running into the, uh, into the kitchen. She said, Daddy, Daddy. She said, that boy's killing his brother. So oh, we rushed out. And sure enough, the older autistic boy was literally strangling his brother 
because his brother wouldn't get off the trampoline fast enough. And he was trying to kill him. And he had no empathy with the fact that he was his brother or not. So, yes, there are people like that, but they're autistic. So, I'm, again, you never hear this when people talk about autistic kids, but, yeah. Parasitic lifestyle. What, pimps? People like that? How about drug dealers? You were a taxman, weren't you? So you, <laughs> you tax the parasites. Yeah. Short-tempered, poor behavioral controls. Well, I would, I would say I'm the opposite to that. Uh, poor behavioral controls get you in a lot of trouble fast. You're a chess player. Mm. Promiscuous sexual relations. Well, when I was a teenager, we all wanted pr promiscuous sexual relations. I mean, that was what the goal was, right? <laughs> Any girl that, uh, yeah, anyway. Early behavioral problems. Does that mean drinking when you're a teenager? Does that mean what? I imagine like getting arrested early, um, harming animals, Setting things fires, like that. Yeah. No, I'm afraid we didn't know arson when I was young. Lack of realistic long-term plans. Well, here's a long-term plan. Um, about 29 years ago, I planted a forest, 40 hectares of pine trees. And last year, I harvested it. $1.5 million. Wow. That was 28 years I waited for that investment to come true. Good grief. I mean, now that, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better example of long-term planning than that one. Impulsivity. Mm, I'm a bit impulsive. I have to I have to admit that. Irresponsible behavior as parent. Well, I have the number of daughters, and one of them's got an MA in genetics. My second daughter is studying university in French. My third daughter has. Uh, just finished her training in the British Army. None of them have had juvenile delinquency cases or any kind of... Uh, and do, do they know your history? I don't know. I mean, everybody <laughs> has broadband these days, right? <laughs> I mean, would you, would you Google your own family? Yeah. Yes. How about you guys? You Google your own family, brothers, sisters, friends... Yes, everybody Googles everybody now. So, I don't know about that one, but I suspect, put it that way. If I mean, I was okay, basically. My story was hidden in the, in the dust of time until broadband happened. Do you remember how internet used to be? Damn. It was a dial-up thing, Prodigy. Dial-up and one page would take a couple of minutes to flip on and... You didn't want to waste your time, right? You just stayed with the important things. You weren't just Googling the neighbors for fun. But now with instant broadband, everybody's on everybody. Especially with high-speed virgin. Frequent marital relationships. Well, in, in San Quentin, you could, you could get married tomorrow and then have a private family visit in three months. Because Tex Watson did that, didn't he? Yeah. Didn't he have kids? Yeah. If people haven't, are not aware of who he is, he was a henchman for Charles Manson. Yeah, Charlie Manson. 
So the system was, if you weren't married, you couldn't have a private family visit. Private family visit was two or three days in the trailer with a woman. Now, you know. So I had, uh, I had one of those, but I never actually got to the, f the private family visit, but I did have a, a marriage in prison just for that purpose because, you know. Yeah, it's, um, it's something that you really uh, <laughs> drives you crazy. Juvenile delinquency. Well, I've, I got a little bit of juvenile delinquency. I got done for theft when I was 15, a little bit of foolishness, you know. What did you steal? Uh, some money, you know, in a store. Woman put her money down on the counter and I grabbed it and ran off. Poor probation or parole risk? Well, that's one of those circular ones because what happens in prison is they, almost everybody is considered a poor risk. And then if they say you're not a risk and you do something, it's going to come back on the parole officer or on the parole board. So they always err towards safety. Well, come back in a couple of years, you know, Mr. Atwood. So actually I was a pretty good risk. I got out in 1987 and haven't been back. What's that, 30 years with no contact? Yeah. Failure to accept responsibility for own actions. <clears throat> do the crime, do the time. You did your time. Many, but escaped. <laughs> many, <laughs> many types of offense. Well, I suppose. I, well, no, not really. They're, they're pretty, pretty much of a muchness, aren't they? Drug or alcohol abuse, not direct cause of antisocial behavior. Now, you see, that question there is a dangerous one because basically what you're doing is it's a code way of saying if you don't cop to some drug or substance abuse, we're going to write you up as a psychopath. So nobody wants to be written up as a psychopath. And so I'll give you an example. There was a guy, a guy named Strepnik. He was a... He was a rounder in Vancouver, a professional criminal, and he was a violent guy. So he knifed a guy in the neck in a bar um, and beat it because the guy didn't see him do it. And about six months later, he did the same thing to another guy, except the guy's friend glassed him and just cut him right, face right open like this, just... Anyway, the problem for him was that they knew he'd done the first one, but he hadn't been made for it. And so they were, they're setting him up for the psychopath role, which would mean, what's the, what do they call it in England, uh, where you get an endless sentence that you never... IPP, indeterminate. There we go. And so in Canada, they had something similar to that, and he was desperate not to get... So he sat down with five of us, and we brainstormed how he could go to the parole board, you know, have you got any child abuse in your, in your, in, in your childhood? You know, have you got any, was your dad touching you? Was your uncle or a scoutmaster, anything, a priest? And he, he said, no, I didn't have any of that. Well, have you got any drug convictions? Anything? Oh, he said, once when I was 18, I got stopped for a couple of caps of heroin. Oh, I said, that's perfect. You're, you're a drug addict. Now, the fact is he wasn't, he used drugs, but he wasn't an addict. But we had to create 
a package for him so that he could memorize it and go to the parole board, shed a few tears to get out. Because the problem is they've set up this this, uh, psychopath stuff so easily that violent offenders in prison are almost automatically shunted in that direction unless they can somehow slip out of it. Now, fortunately, he he managed to tell the tale with some enthusiasm and uh, got, you know, some parole with drug program and counseling and da-da-da-da. Before we go on to your jail stories then, who were the most dangerous people you ever encountered in your life? I encountered lots of dangerous people, but the thing is, how to put it, people's claws are sheathed, right? They're in prison and they're walking around. But unless the claws come out, you don't see it. And if you do see it, that's bad because it could be you're in their focus. The, the most dangerous guy I, I, I would say was a fellow named uh, Doug Orr. I don't know if I mentioned him before. I think I mentioned him in the last podcast. What was he in for? Uh, he was in for everything. He was a, an assassin for the Hells Angels. And he was also a straight-up berserker. He, um, In a fit of strength, he broke a pair of handcuffs like this. And he was uh, a, a very violent guy. What did he look like? He was about 6'4", blonde, brown, curly hair, big, classic, like a Greek god, I mean, a, a Viking god. Did you, did you ever heard the name Sonny Barger? Oh, yeah, he's out of Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. His, one of his right-hand guys, I can't remember his name, I was at Nico or something, was in the cell next to me. This guy was oh, just like, oh, my goodness, yeah, big, scary looking. Well, Sonny Barger was the president of the Hells Angels when it first started. Yeah. Oakland chapter. Yeah. And he writes about a whole page about Doug Orr. Does he? He calls him the most violent motherfucker he ever knew. Really? (laughs) Wow. And what was your relationship with him? I, I looked at him as a mentor because in prison, I was interested in running into the real deal. You know, a lot of guys in prison talk shit. I mean... Basically, to spin their way through the day, people tell stories and talk. All day long, people are talking shit. And it just goes on and on and on. Every other sentence is motherfucker this, motherfucker And they're talking about all the stuff they did and how what, a, what an ace they were and how much money they made. And it goes on and on and on. <laughs> and it's nearly all nonsense. You know, This will be the same guy who's trying to you know, borrow a 50-cent ducat from you for some because he can't buy toothpaste himself and his his visitors, you know, don't want to see him and his family have just dumped him. And so the result is you end up starved for the real deal. Like who, who are the real ones in this, out of this whole mob of predators, right? That you got all the jackals and you got the coyotes, but where are the tigers and the lions, right? And so I'm not sure why I was interested in that, but I wanted. I thought if I'm going to be in this situation, these are the people I want to know. And so he was one of them. And Phil, How did you approach him? Well, as usual, I went Phil Thompson. Phil Thompson, he used to sell machine guns to the uh, Hells Angels and other things, grenades and that sort of stuff. 
So that they were always interested in machine guns, you know. They were so he knew people, and I was associated with him. So, and I don't know somehow or other, Doug or he had uh, I don't I wouldn't say he was a friend, but I just say he put up with me. He was. Do you remember your first conversation with he'd him? He'd tell me about things. Well, he talked to me after that uh, when the BGF tried to kill me in the library. He talked to me after that. I guess I'd earned some respect in the sense that I'd survived. <laughs> if you want that story, <laughs> click now in the description box of part one. So at that point, he, sh he shared an experience he had where about five or six of BGF came after him. And he, he pulled up his pants and they gouged out about a baseball size of meat out of his calf muscle. So in the, in the fight... Uh, why did they come after him? Well, he was considered toughest white boy on the yard, so you know those things tend to happen during a race war. Was yeah, it? yeah. Well, all right. So you said that you had some county jail stories that you've never told. Include we got San Francisco at the top. Well, the one I wanted to tell you about San Francisco was um, I was. This is 1978. I was in a in a jail cell there, and I didn't know anybody, and they didn't know me, and we were just sort of hanging out like you know chimps in the cage. And suddenly, this guy came in from a, a legal visit, and he starts muttering to other guys in the in, in the cell, and I can tell something's happening, but I don't know what it is. And but ten minutes go by. And suddenly, five guys jump on this other guy. One guy on each arm, a guy on each leg. They jumped on the motorer. Yeah, no, not on him, on somebody else, just out of the blue. They just, with no words passed, nothing. They jump on him, a guy on each arm and leg. And this other guy, the guy who, who came in with the story, he takes one of the TV antennas off the old TV, you know, the old rabbit ears, extendable, and he breaks it off and he starts slamming the jagged end into this guy's eyes. Bam, bam. And the guy's screaming and shaking and he, this guy just keeps jamming it into his eyes. And in Sacramento, I mean, excuse me, in San Francisco jail, there's so many nutters there's people screaming and howling that nobody came. And we just had to listen to this as they tore this guy's eyes to pieces. They didn't kill him. And finally, somebody started walking down where we were, one of the trustees, and these guys just moved off and left his body there, and he was just shaking and bleeding and screaming and crying. And, I mean, I shouldn't, it shouldn't impact on me because I didn't know him. I didn't know them. I had nothing to do with it. But the idea that people could just turn on one of the fellow prisoners just like that and just like do life like damage, I mean, damaging, life destroying injuries to somebody for what? And, you know, afterwards I said, well, what was all that about? Oh, he was a rat. Well, I didn't want to say anything, but I'm thinking to myself, I watched the whole thing come down. Nobody brought in any papers. 
Nobody showed anything on anyone. Some guy just walked in and said, this guy's a rat. And so everybody just jumps on him and, and stabs his eyes out. I know, again, this is one of these times when I've, I realized what a dangerous place I was. Because it, it wasn't just you having a beef with somebody. And it wasn't just predatory behavior. The whole cell could just turn on you on an instant because some guy said something some to someone. So I experienced something very similar in the Maricopa County Jail. I was in a holding cell going to court and we were like, I was medium security at that point. And this was like, we were all just sardined in this cell, just like 40 people, whatever. Then they put these maximum security guys come down. They put them in the cell with us as well. And they clocked somebody in there that must have been, they thought was a rat, was a rat. And exactly what you said happened without the eye thing, but they were like just stomping on this guy's head, stomping on his limbs, trying to break all his bones and kill him basically. But what I'm interested in is the room you were in then, what was the atmosphere like up to the point that the, the violence started and how did the atmosphere change? Because it was interesting because everyone just sat sard sardined. And then when that happened, there was like a wave of movement throughout the room. And I was with my big uh, co-defendant, Wild Man. He, he just he just threw me against the wall and, and stood in front of me. But the whole room just like went like this. And these guys were just, you know, there was distance made for this to happen, what they were doing. But just to go from like everybody just talking, and then in a second, Well, in your case, nobody wants to get blood on them. Yeah. Because if you get any drops of blood, then you were in the game and you're going to get part of the court case. Yeah. This one, the eyes, that, when you stab someone in the eyes, there isn't that much blood. It's not like, you know, a normal knife wound. Yeah. But the screaming and uh, that was one of these moments when I realized that I was in a, that I had no control over some things. Somebody mistakes you for somebody else. Some, your name happens to be the same as someone else. Some court case that happened some other place, you, you'd be done by those guys. And what can you do? Five guys just suddenly jump you like that. Well, there was a rule where I was at, which was show us the paperwork. But when, it, when that incident started happening then, did you move physically? Well, I, I was back sitting on my bunk and I didn't want to, I just, I didn't even want to look at it. I just was like looking away because of course, if you start showing too much interest in it, you're going to attract someone's attention. And because I didn't know anybody, and as far as I could see, these guys didn't, the guys who did it didn't know whether it was true or not. They just did it on this guy saying that. And sometimes your enemies can, it's called the okie doke where they just put a jacket on you even though you've not done anything just to get you out of the way because that's well, your enemy. Or the police will do it. That's one. Yeah, of, that's yeah. one of the easiest ways for the police to put one on you yeah. is to just, you know, spread the word to the trustees. This guy's in for a, you know, a pedophile case yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah, that's called having a chomo jacket in Arizona. Mm. Yeah, but that was uh, that was an unforgettable experience, and I I feel for that guy because I don't know if he was a rat or what he was, but. I mean, what kind of shape are you going to be in after that? Right? So the guards came in and dragged him out, did they? They just dragged him out. And yeah. Off he goes to the hospital. 
And of course, if you go to, if you're a prisoner in, in the San Francisco County Jail, when you go to the hospital, imagine what kind of t- treatment you're going to get. Basically, what they do is the prisoners are used as guinea pigs for interns, for students. And I know this because I, got a, I had a hernia uh, caused by, I got too excited about my gymnastic skills and I was trying to do chin-ups with my legs uh, horizontal. And it was beyond me and I caused a hernia. And so I had to go for an operation in San Francisco County Jail. And of course, even though hernia operations are supposed to be the safest, the guys goofed it. And my scrotum swelled up like a Oh, I didn't get that one. I had a cellmate who had that. Cantaloupe. I had a cellmate who had that. It can, can, what, herniate and you kill your strangulate. Uh, It was a nightmare. (sighs) And so the the real surgeon had to, the old teacher, whoever it was, had to come and repair this. But that's another risk you run if you're a prisoner in one of these county jails. Yeah, he had that. His balls were like this big. And it could strangulate or hurt. What was it? There was something that well, can happen. What happens? Can... The muscle swells and it, and it cuts off the intestine, and then the intestine, starved of blood, goes necrotic, and you're in deep trouble. And the jail would not authorize the operation for him, and he was suing the jail to try and get the operation. All that's in my book, Hard Time. If you want to read all the details of my cellmate there. All right, so the next county jail story was Sacramento. Well, I I was only there. I was there one night being transferred, and they had nowhere to put me, so they put me down in a cell kitty corner from the drunk tank. And it was one of these, I think it must have been a nutter cell because it had padded walls and a drain, and there was nothing, you know, just a toilet, one of those push-button toilets. And there was nothing to do, and it was, I had no books, I had nothing. So you press your head up to the door, and you're peeking through a little angle of window to see what you could see. And I could see the drunk tank. And so one night, some sheriffs come down into the drunk tank area. And right in front of my cell, they start taking their badges off and putting them in their pockets. Not a good sign. Now, this is a bad sign. <laughs> this means, this means uh, somebody is, uh, is up for it. And so at this point, I'm trying to look, but I don't want them to see me looking, so I'm you know, staying back. So they go over in front of the drunk tank, and there's two white deputies and this one Chicano. And the Chicano, I don't know if you ever watched the 1980s uh, TV drama called Chips. I saw a few of them, yeah. This guy, was his name was Louis Estrada, I think his name was. And he, he'd wear a, a uniform that was too tight to make his muscles, you know, show. And, you know, this sort of tight designer, like, police clothes on. And he starts rolling on a pair of black leather gloves. And then he's standing in front of, uh, they're standing in front of the drunk tank. And one of the white deputies starts pretending to masturbate like this, wanking, right, in front of all the drunks. And, you know, the drunks are wandering around like zombies in some zombie movie, like totally comatose and just... 
But finally, one old prophet, you know, his gray hair like this and crazy eyes, sees this and starts screaming, you know, fuck you. Wah, wah, wah. And of course, that was what they were waiting for. So the three officers go into the drunk tank. The two white guys hold the drunk. And this Chicano deputy just goes to town on him like the heavy bag. Just giving it to him in the ribs and the solar plexus. Bam! In the face. Just. And this guy's he's out, out of it in about the first couple seconds. But they hold him up while this guy's giving it to him. And finally, the, the, the old drunk just vomits all over this, this guy's shoes, right? And down he goes, and then they all three of them put the boots to him. Now, I was watching this from start to finish, and I was only there one night. And by the way the guys, they were doing this, that this was just entertainment at the, at the Sacramento County Jail. These guys were just going down and brutalizing the drunks for fun. and. Whoever their officer was, I mean, must have, clearly must have known what was going on. And this is just standard procedure. Mm. How was it at the old sheriff uh, arpeggios? Well, everything's cameraed up these days, isn't it? Oh, I see. You're talking about pre-camera. Right. And one of the things you wanted to discuss today was, because people judge your story in the context of how prisons are today, and they're trying to call you out and saying it can't be like that, this can't happen, this prison rule isn't like that. But you, you're talking back as prison in the 70s? Yeah. Well, the age of mass incarceration that you're talking about, you know, where every cell, every prison is stuffed with people, you know, the gym in San Quentin is now like, what, triple bunks through the whole thing. That came about as a reaction to what was going on in the 70s. I'll give you a story. There's, a, there's two stories I like to tell, but one is from Shasta County, and it concerns a guy I was in, in the jail with. I went, I went there for escape, for my escape charge, and it was an old little county jail. They didn't have much money. And the first prisoner I talked to, I said, what are you in for? And he says, speeding. And I thought he meant methamphetamine. And he says, no. He says, I didn't pay my speeding ticket. I said, what? You're in jail for nothing? Yeah, he says, the sheriffs say, if you don't pay the fines, you go to jail. Now, he was in cell number one. In cell number three was Hootie Croy, who'd killed the cop. Now, Hootie Croy, when I went there, he just got out of the hospital. They'd shot him a few times. And his, he was still bleeding. Not, not bleeding, but seeping. His wounds were seeping, and he couldn't move, and he couldn't go to the toilet. He had to be carried, but so if, if a prisoner didn't want to carry him, he couldn't go. And he was, he was in cell number three. So there was no separation between who was in what cell in, in, the, in the Shasta County Jail. Now, Hootie Croy, he and his family, on a typical kind of Indian night out, Friday night, robbed an out, uh, a liquor store, got in the old jalopy, were racing away, police chasing them. His cousin leans out the window and sort of fires a shot or two at the police. Well, you know, it's going to get them excited. And the police come from here, there, and everywhere, and there's a couple thousand rounds fired, and he's shot, his cousin's shot, his sister's shot. 
And he manages to, to shoot a policeman right through the heart, dead, kills him. Now, you kill a policeman in the United States. One, you're lucky if you even make it to court because there's a very good chance you'll just get snuffed on the way. But he made it back to, to, to jail and he was taken to court in Shasta County and given the death penalty and sent to death row. Now, here's the interesting part. When he was in San Francisco, some of these left-wing activists said, this is terrible, an Indian has been sent to prison. It must be white racism. It must be police racism. And so they started agitating, and they had a friend in Rose Byrd, who was the chief justice in California uh, State Supreme Court. In her last day on office, she gave Hootie Croy a new trial. Now, he gets a new trial. He goes, and they give him a change of venue out of the mountains in the white bread sort of Shasta County to San Francisco. And one of these Hollywood lawyers, Tony Serra, I don't know if he was the same guy who, who, who defended O.J. Simpson, but anyway, Tony Serra comes up and he defends Hootie Croy. And he turns a, a, a liquor store robbery and shootout into the racist white police attempt to genocide against the Indians, just like their grandfathers did in the gold rush in the 1800s. And this, this flies with the San Francisco jury, and he's found innocent, innocent of killing a police officer. And the reason he's found innocent is because you know, he knew that his people had been slaughtered by the white cowboys and gold miners, and he thought that he was going to die. So firing back at the police was just his right self-defense. So Hootie Croy gets off with killing a policeman. The second story, which is, goes towards this thing I'm trying to explain about the 70s, was Dan White. Have you heard of Dan White? No. Now, I met him in the San Francisco County Jail. Dan White, he, he, he came from San Francisco. He used to be a policeman, a good Irish-American boy. And he'd uh, quit the police department because he saw one of his fellow officers beating a handcuffed suspect. He was true blue. He'd volunteered for Vietnam. And then he became a fireman. Now, San Francisco is a strange place. In his time, it was like a white working-class city. But as you probably know, the Summer of Love in 1967 had tens of thousands of hippies show up. And then by 1970, the hippies had become drug addicts. And so it became like drug addict central. And then after the drug addicts, the homosexuals came swarming in. And tens of thousands of homosexuals moved into San Francisco Castro District. And so the city was changing mighty fast. And so the policemen and the firemen and the working class whites asked Dan White to be their representative on the city council. And he was elected a city supervisor. But he was a kind of a boy scout. He wasn't up for the cut and thrust of San Francisco politics. And pretty soon he was maneuvered into resigning. And then he got grumpy. 
And one day, with his service pistol in his pocket, he climbed through the window of City Hall, through a back window that he knew wasn't uh, no metal detector checks, went upstairs into the mayor's office, Mayor Moscone of San Francisco, put two through his heart, walked over to Supervisor Milk, who was the first homosexual supervisor in American history, and give him five in the chest. Well, the last two were right to his head. And then he went hunting for the other supervisors, but he couldn't find them. He walked past Nancy Pelosi. I don't know if you know her name. Yeah. He walked past her after he shot Moscone and before he'd shot Milk, and she was another supervisor. And that, by the way, was her saving grace. That's what made her the politician she became. But anyway... So Dan White then goes to the police station where he used to work, turns in his gun and says, I committed this murder and killed these two people. And he goes to court. Now, here's the best part. Dan White, he goes for a diminished capacity defense. And the reason he, he suffered diminished capacity is because he'd eaten three Hostess Twinkies for breakfast. It's called, it's called the Twinkie defense. I've heard of this, Twinkie defense. He ate three Hostess Twinkies, and the blood sugar had like threw, thrown off his stability and had caused diminished capacity. And here's the best part. He was found not guilty of premeditated murder, not guilty of second-degree murder, and he was found guilty of manslaughter. Given a seven-year sentence for a, a double premeditated murder of the mayor and the first gay supervisor. Good grief. Now, that case, the Hootie Croy case, and about 50 other cases, finally, the people of California just got so fed up with these progressive, lefty, woke politicians and judges bending over backwards to give the poor uh, ghetto and uh, minority uh, groups breaks. And finally, the reaction became President Reagan. Actually, before he was President Reagan, he was Governor Reagan. And then three strikes and you're out, 25-year sentences for car theft. And so all of that, um, what do you want to call it, severe, hardcore sentencing came as an overreaction to just how wildly lenient things were in the late 70s. I mean, can you imagine you and your lawyer with a straight face, get up there and make the Twinkie defense for an assassination. I mean, why did he climb through the window? Well, it's just something that we police usually used to do. Come on. Why was he bringing a gun into the... Why did he reload and go shoot uh, Harvey Milk if he was, uh, you know, momentarily uh, distraught? And then he, he, he tells, Dan White tells his... Um, one of his friends, policeman who went up seeing that he actually planned to get Willie Brown and two other supervisors, but he couldn't find them. And he only had 10 bullets. So. Good grief. Now, I, I, I got to know Dan because when I had that operation, I was put in a medical cell, and he was in the cell next to me. So I talked to him sometimes. And he was just dazed and confused. He, he, he basically, <sighs> killing the mayor and killing Harvey Milk were a way for him to resolve what had happened to his city. 
how it would become like a cesspit of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sort of saw things that way. Anyway, Dan, Dan did five years for that. Came back to San Francisco and they found him suicided in a garage. Uh, what a bloody story. So it was a time when you know, unbelievable stuff happened. And so for, for the guys who, who watch this and, and find it unbelievable, we found it unbelievable at the time. <laughs> so you should look into Dan White's story. It's quite a eye-opener. So next county jail story was Oakland. Well, the Oakland one uh, was... Um, the one you already did. No, it was in the ice house. And I must say, it, was, it didn't... I didn't shine on that one. It was, uh, I'm sort of, I regret a bit what I did, but basically what happened is I came into a cell. There were about 20 guys in the cell, about five Chicanos, one other white guy, an old guy, and me, and the rest were blacks. And the white guy was making coffees for the blacks. That was his job. <laughs> and... I thought to myself, this is a bad situation here, right? Oh, it could go bad oh, any time. Oh. And so I was doing my usual workout and the rest of it. And one day, this kind of young-looking white kid appears outside the bars with a mop, and he's mopping. And one of these guys says, you own Peckerwood's fucking rat. Ah, da, 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 da. And they start talking, race talk, and what they're going to do, and this and that, and this and that. And I'm thinking, well, you boys, and you won't be able to touch him, but I'm here, and uh, this other old white guy's here, so who knows? Anyway, I thought to myself, i got to get on the right side of uh, history here. So I go over to the black guys, a couple of black guys, and I said, uh, I'll get him over to the bars if you guys want to give him a whack. And uh, I told the old white guy, I said, make up a real hot cup of coffee. So I took a cup of coffee, and I walked over to the bars, and I called this guy and he didn't want to come because he was nervous about these black guys but the black guys all sort of turned their backs and were like looking the other way on the bench and he was feeling safe so he comes up to me and I just gave him the coffee in the face and he's standing there screaming and these black guys run over with this broom handle and through the bars they're whacking him and uh, pretty soon he's screaming and pretty soon the guards come and the guard just kind of smiles at them, and they smile at him, and he leads this kid away. And, you know, that, at that point, I'm sort of one of the fellows, and we're all talking it up on the bench, right? Two things, then. What was the beef with the white guy, with the, with just from shit-talking, and wouldn't that carry forward with the white race when you got moved somewhere else? Did This is the guy who sided with the blacks? Well, you know... The situation we were in, the blast could take us out any moment. So the older white guy was making him coffees to, to stay on the right side. And, I, you know, I realized it's just anybody says anything, and I, I, I'm done. There's nothing I can do against these 15 guys. Plus, they're all in for death penalty offenses. So, you know. Well, Preservation. So what are you going to do? So the kid... You know, you could tell what happened. He'd, he'd come from some white neighborhood in Alameda County, and nobody went his bail, so he was downstairs with the blacks, 
And of course, he he you know got beat up and then told on them to get in PC to get out of there. So he brought it on himself. So he brought it on himself, but I was normally I wouldn't have done something like that, and I sort of regret doing it. But at the time, I thought it was the right move to make. So the next one then is YOLO. Well, the YOLO County one was the the fat black Michelin man. Oh, that was that one. Yeah. Shasta. That was the one we just talked about with Hohudi Croy. Okay, so last time. Oh, actually, actually it isn't. There's one more thing about Shasta which is interesting. Shasta County Jail didn't have any money, hardly any. So they didn't spend money on food. So breakfast were two little silver dollar pancakes with a bit of syrup and one cup of coffee. Two little silver dollar pancakes. And lunch was one piece of bread and two pieces of bologna. And that was it for breakfast and lunch. That must have made people hungry. Well, I realized I didn't have enough to eat because I like working out. And the only way I was going to get enough to eat was to take other... um, sort of prisoners' food. So fortunately, there were about any, every day there were about three or four drunks in there. So I would go up in the morning, take the trays and just take all their food. And the only guy I took the food to straight was Hootie Croy because I had a bit of respect for what he did. And so, you know, there I was and I asked, I asked this kid, I said, what's up with this food? And he says, oh, the county doesn't have any money and they're certainly not going to spend it on us. And it was, I guess it was a way of encouraging him to pay his fine or somebody to pay the fine. So I was actually, I had, and I'm not a, a sort of apex predator, but I still had to take other people's food to get enough to eat. That's what it reduces you to. So last time I asked several questions that you didn't really answer. For example, about representing in prison riots. Well, the, the closest I ever got to a riot was in Vacaville. Um, they had one TV in the TV room, but there were blacks, Chicanos, and whites. And dinner was at uh, like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, pretty early. And... Whoever came out of dinner first would be the first person who would turn on the TV and choose the channel. Well, that's the big responsibility. Uh, that's not one that I'd like to have. Mm. Coincidentally, starting at five o'clock, there was one program called American Bandstand. I don't know if you ever heard of it. American Bandstand was kind of like, a, you know, Teenage pop music and kids would dance and popular music would be played and kids and then it would showcased music, it, but white music. And at the same time, on a different channel, there was another program, and it was the black music program, and it had black teenagers and they were doing black songs at five o'clock. So. This white kid, he he gave up on his Jello for for breakfast. I mean, for dessert, so that he could get out of the chow hall quickly, 
so he could go turn on American Bandstand. And he was a big guy. He was like 6'3", maybe 2'10", 220, but he was sloppy. And he would sit right by the television at the closest as he could sit. And he obviously, for him, he was first. He got to choose what channel was on. Well, this afternoon came by and 20 young bloods decided to miss on their jello too. And they went over and sat in front of the TV. And the older one kind of looked at one and and, he, and so the kid got up, black guy, went over and changed the channel from a, to from American Bandstand to Soul Train. That was the name of Soul the Train. Yeah. Soul Train, yeah. the black program. And he changed the channel and sat down. And this kid, you know, being a good, he must have been middle class kid because working class kid would have known better. He he'd been there first, and so you know. He was going to make the choice. So he got back up and changed it back to American Bandstand. Now the black kid stood up, and I saw him look at the older guy, and the older guy gave him the nod. Now, I could see it from across the room what was going to happen, but this kid, he just was standing there, and the black just walked over and clocked him. Bam! And he fell like a bag of potatoes. Boom! On the ground. And the moment he fell, the black scooped up the folding metal chairs, and I was there with about four or five, six white guys, and then there were a bunch of other whites coming into the, the room. And as soon as I saw these guys pick up the chairs, I picked up a chair, and then I looked behind me, and there were only about five white guys behind me with chairs, and there were about 20 of them. And the other Caucasians were just running for the door to get out of the, uh, the TV room before... You know, the guards came and locked up. And, and so we had this moment where the young blood's looking at me with the chair. He's about to give it to me in the face. And then he sees I've got the chair too. And he doesn't. And so the, the race riot. And then the guard, the alarms go off and the guards start screaming on the loudspeaker. And we everybody drops their chairs and pretends it didn't happen. <laughs> so it was that close to the riot. That was the closest I ever got, and I, I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't see it as representing the white race. I just didn't want to get a mouthful of chair standing there like a goof, like this kid did. So most beefs are one on one. Did you see any other brawl, like mass brawls, multiple people joining in? Well, <laughs> I I guess I'm lucky because I got to Sierra Conservation Center. And they'd just come off a lockdown for a riot. Do you remember the last podcast I told you about a, a huge black guy who got a weight bar across the head while he was, yeah. as, he was asleep? Yeah. Well, what had happened was this guy was massive, and he had a ghetto blaster. And he used to put on Soul Train or whatever it was, hardcore black music, loud. And he played it loud inside a dormitory. And the dormitory's got 20 guys, and they're racially mixed. And he didn't care. Because obviously, he'd come straight from county jail, maybe a little bit of time in Vacaville, to the Sierra Conservation Center. He'd never been in, in a serious prison, or he wouldn't have done that for sure. So he was disrespecting everybody in the dorm by doing that. But he was so big, he didn't care. He just thought, you know, 
And so once one day he was off doing something, and these two guys, um, they took his ghetto blaster and they put it in a bucket of water and put it on top of his pillow to give him the message. And he came back into the cell, I mean, into the, the, the dorm, and he took one look at this. And he looked around at everybody and he says, I killed a motherfucker, does this disrespect me, blah, 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 to everybody in the dorm. Now, that's another, like, giant no-no. I mean, you just, you just put it on everybody in the dorm, not even waiting to pick out who you thought, but just on everybody. Anyway, so then he takes his ghetto blaster outside and leaves it to dry in the sun. And it, you know, probably would have dried. And then he goes to sleep. Well, you know, he goes to sleep and this guy Leo and his road dog, Harmonic Mike, Leo has goes gets a weight bar, one of these little uh, ones you put the dumbbells on, and he just crushes the guy's skull with one shot. And of course, the blacks, someone comes in to see him, finds his body there, runs out, tells the blacks, they just attack all the Peckerwoods who are on the weight pit, you know, all the guys with the tattoos, they're on the weight pit, and the blacks attack them with like broken chair legs and, you know, whatever they can find. Except attacking people in the weight pit is like the dumbest thing you can do because they've got all the iron. They've got the weight bars and they've got the, the weights. And so the race ride, boom, it just takes off guns, shooting, et cetera, et cetera. So when I got there, this, the, the lockdown had just finished. And because of this riot, because they knew, the guards knew exactly why it started, because of noise. Because the blacks' acceptance of noise, their level that, which they could put up with noise was really high. Have you ever heard the expression, um, they smell, they tell, and they yell? Mm-mm. That's what the old white convicts used to say about the blacks, right? Because they love to slap dominoes on the steel tables and shout. And Anyway, the guards knew why this happened. And so they after the riot, instituted a quiet dorm system. So there was a dorm where there was, you weren't allowed to have any music. There was no loud talking, no game playing, and you had to be quiet. And you had to be introduced by another prisoner who was already going into, into that cell. And of course, the only people that went in there were white. So it became like a white-only dormitory. And of course, that's where I wanted to be. Yeah. So... Yeah, that was the background of, of that race ride. So I missed that one also. And then in Canada, I missed the great Matsqui prison ride, which you've probably never heard of because nobody knows anything about things Canadian. But it, it, they burned the entire cell block and the guards escaped like the American uh, uh, CIA guys from the Saigon embassy. Have you ever seen those videos? <laughs> where they're all climbing on the helicopter as it makes its way out, and the place is burning up. And in the Matsqui, it was a medium uh, security prison where all the you know, lively gunsels go. And they tore it down completely. It took about a year for it to be fixed. And the prisoners all lived out in tents out in the yard for a year. So I missed that one. So I actually was very lucky because I went through my prison time 
aside from that, you know, Soul Train versus um, American Bandstand, escaping these uh, uh, prison riots. Because, of course, in the riot, then it is going to kick off. And what are you going to do? You can't, you can't say, well, I'm not part of this. <laughs> Got to represent. <laughs> so. How did you manage to get into the quiet building? Well, I mean, I, I, I'd spend money for things like that. I mean, whatever it was, five packs of cigarettes, I'd get on the list, however it was. Because the biggest thing for me was quiet. If, it was, if I could get a good night's sleep, I was fine. If I couldn't get a good night's sleep, then I was doing hard time. Yeah, it teaches you to value things like food and sleep, doesn't it, going through experiences like this? Mm. So, so I would tell any guy who wants to do good time, I'd say, work out till you're exhausted and get a good night's sleep. And then, you know, one, you've kept yourself fit. Two, you, you, you're not going to be worried, thinking about all the mistakes you made in your life. And three, you wake up with a good attitude. So Yeah, or exhaust yourself for a really physical job. Mm. When I was in the clipper room in the kitchen, washing those trays all day, oh, I slept like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all these news stories about police brutality... And you've had some experiences or seen some stuff. Well, my experience with police brutality, of two of them. Um, first one, I didn't even know these guys. I didn't even know what happened. Um, I was walking along. Remember I told you um, I'd been shoplifting when I escaped just to sort of. And these guys had been moonlighting as security guards, three policemen from the San Francisco Police Department. And... I'd been shoplifting, but I wasn't actually um, doing it at the moment when they came along, but they'd obviously been told that I'd been shoplifting. And I just, I was thrown on the ground and choked out in about five seconds. I didn't even, it was so fast, I didn't even know what happened. One guy, these guys were like a professional team. One guy was on each arm, one guy was on my back, rode me onto the ground, and he choked me out in about five seconds. And he had this feeling of this incredible weight on my back and I didn't know where I was and didn't know what happened and I couldn't breathe. And, you know, it, it was that fast. Uh, you choke someone out properly, you put them out almost instantly. So that was, I had, it, it, was, it happened so fast I, I can't even, I haven't got any memory of, of much of it. But when I came to, I was very unhappy with what had happened. Let's put you a bit closer to your mic because you just went right back, yeah, Ben. Sorry. You can bring it towards you if you want. No, no, that's fine. There you go. When I went, um, when I came to, I wasn't happy with what happened because they'd arrested me and I was an escapee from prison and this wasn't going to end well. So they threw me in the police car and they shut the doors. But when they threw me in the police car, I didn't hear the double click. Now, the back door. There's a security lock, and then there's the regular lock. So when they slam the door shut, the regular lock engages. But then the police has a button they can push to put the security lock so you can't open it from the inside. I didn't hear the second lock go. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. So they had me cuffed like this behind my back. So in the back of the car, without them noticing, I had to sort of shiggle around and get my, arm, my legs through the cuffs. And so I got the cuffs in front of me. And then as the police car 
went down the ramp into the basement of the police station, I yarded open the door and rolled out on the ramp and took off running. Well, I'm running right down the middle of like, you know, it's like middle of the day in sort of San Francisco down to Main Street, right down the middle of the street with my handcuffs. But if, if you're wearing handcuffs, it really makes running difficult. I don't know. Well, you've obviously never done it. And who would? <laughs> <laughs> but you lose your balance. You're running, but you can't, you know? So you're not running. I'm pretty quick at running, but I wasn't running with, with proper uh, vigor. And it turned out that the guy who was driving the car was a marathoner, the cop. And, I, you know, I could hear him coming, and he was getting closer. I thought, how can this be? I'm pretty quick. But he was quicker than me. And as I turned to look back at him, I bounced off a car and crashed into another one and fell oh. on the ground. And anyway, these guys were pissed off now because I'd done a rabbit on them. And not only that, but they're going to have to tell their sergeant that they hadn't double-clicked the door so when they got me back down to the basement, it was time for a beating. So the three of them went to it, you know, fisticuffs and kicks and the rest of it. Now, you got two choices when the police start beating you. One, you can go Bruce Cagney style, you know, and stand up and say, fuck you, pig, and then you get your teeth kicked out. Or two, you can ham it up. So that's what I did. Every time the guy kicked me, I was, oh, and groaning and, you know, like like I was about to die. Anyway. Is it a fetal position situation? It's a fe well, you got to keep moving, though, because if you, let, if you stay still, then the guy's kick gets solid velocity and gets solid contact. But if you're moving all the time, the kicks bounce off and don't get the full impact. So you got to so stay moving. So you got to do a maggot thing. Yeah, and keep moving as you're getting the, the boots and the kicks and the punches. See, we give you tips on situations that you've never heard before. <laughs> anyway, the sergeant comes down, and the sergeant looks at me, and he, he's hearing this noise. And he looks at the guys, and he says, he's not even bleeding. <sighs> so he, he was a veteran of beating people up. He, he knew what to look for. He knew when they'd actually got, got it, right? And he was unhappy that these patrolmen had let me sort of uh, game it a bit, you know. Did he take over? No, no, he was, he's a sergeant. He's kind of risen above that, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those situations that, uh, I mean, my grandfather, he was taken prisoner by the Germans, World War I. And in the prison camp, he ran into this Prussian officer who spoke some English. And the Prussian officer asked him about this guy, this German, who had a big business in the same province my grandfather came from. And my grandfather smarted off with him and said the guy was a fucking pig or something. And the German just pulled out his pistol and knocked out my grandfather's teeth, all his front teeth. Bam! For all my life, all his life, my grandfather had false teeth because for two seconds or however long it took, he smarted off when he should have stayed quiet. So I still have my teeth, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you lived in a black ghetto for a while at a halfway house, which was an eye-opening experience. It was. Um, you, do you remember, because 
that San, in San Quentin, the BGF guys tried to kill me. Um, we, I got out of the punitive North Block because some black guys assigned a petition saying I wasn't into this race stuff. Well, when I got released onto a halfway house program, the same way racial quota, racial quotas work where a white halfway house would have to have some blacks, a black halfway house has to have a few token whites. So I ended up down at the Volunteers of America uh, halfway house in East Oakland, the middle of a hardcore black ghetto, like East 113th Street or whatever it was, I don't remember. And I had to walk to the bus to the bus stop through this ghetto from the halfway house every day and then walk back. And about the third morning as I was walking, there was a there was a side street that was I used to go down, and the Sally Ann their, their uh, furniture place where people throw old furniture and they give it to the homeless. They, the homeless had taken all this old furniture and sort of blocked the street off and would have street parties, that kind of thing, all the old hobos and street people. And as I was walking along, I looked across and there was a dead body in the gutter. And his throat had been slashed, like completely open. It was leaning back and the flies were in it. This is like nine o'clock in the morning. And I looked at this and I thought, shit, I don't want to be around here. So I just quickly headed off. Now here's the kicker. When I came back at 5.30, it was still there. It was still there. And it was still there for the same reason. Nobody wanted to be the person who phoned the police and told them it was there because they'd be the first person the police would accuse of doing it. Mm. They'd be the one who get jacked. And so... We're talking the United States of America. You're talking third world situation. I've been in countries like all kinds of third world countries. You'll never see stuff like that. But this was a dead body all day long in East Oakland in the gutter. Wow. So we're almost at two hours, John. Are there any stories that I have left out today or oh, anything no, that you want to say? Two hours is good. You don't want to tax these guys' patience too much. <laughs> Do you think if the viewers put questions below this video that you would come back and answer those questions and maybe give us yeah, some stories? Yeah, that would be no problem. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so if you are watching this then, please put your f um, further questions for John in the comments below this video. We really hope you've enjoyed it. Huge thank you to the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. Huge thank you to people who donated so we can film in podcast studios with James, our cameraman, and Joe, our sound engineer. All those links, PayPal, Patreon, just give in, are in the description box, as are links to the socials and the True Crime Podcast. Well over 100 videos. Hours and hours of endless entertainment. But I do urge you to go down and watch podcast number eight, San Quentin Prison Shootout and Escapes. Because it is, if you th think what you just heard was hardcore, it's, it's, it's intense, especially um, the shootout stories and how, you know, it was, it was life and death. It was like, whew, it will really get your heart rate up. So, thanks for coming on. Might be too hot to man hug. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it's Excellent. Good. Yes, thank you. No, no, it's good. Uh, it's good. Excellent.